Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Are we inching towards a big regional war in the Middle East? What we see today is that two major unresolved issues are starting to interact with each other and could cause quite serious problems. One is, of course, the unresolved position of Iran, and the second problem is, of course, the unresolved issue of Palestine. This is what Erwin van Wien sees when he looks at the Middle East. He's a senior research fellow at Dials Institute, Conflict Research Unit, and head of Dials Middle East program. We talk about the war in Gaza, the Houthis attack in the Red Sea, and Iran-Saudi rivalry, but also about Russia and China and their approaches to the current events in the Middle East. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Let me start with the recent statement by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And he said the situation in the Middle East is the most dangerous since at least 1973. Do you agree or maybe disagree with such a statement and why? It was a rather quick change compared to Jack Sullivan saying only a few days, I think, before 7 October that he had never seen the Middle East so calm. Well, I mean, what we see today, I think, is that two major unresolved issues are starting to interact with each other and could cause quite serious problems. One is, of course, the unresolved position of Iran in the region, especially since 2018 when the Americans withdrew from the nuclear deal and have sought to get Iran to change its regional behavior through sanctions. And Iran has responded by continuing to build up what they call the axis of resistance, right? This network of armed groups linked to Iran. And the second problem is, of course, the unresolved issue of Palestine, that both the Israelis and the Americans thought they could bypass, essentially, through the Abraham Accords, which would have normalized relations between Israel and some of the major Arab countries in the region. So we also know that Iran has been supporting Hamas for quite some time. It may or may not have been involved in the attack of 7 October. It doesn't look like it. But these two things are now coming together. And what we see now is that the Israeli military campaign in Gaza, which is turning out to be extremely ruthless without any regard for the life and the well-being of the 2.2 Palestinians are living there, it brings these issues together in a way that is more extreme than ever before. Right? And so we see escalation in the Red Sea with the Houthi. We see skirmishes on the border between Lebanon and Israel. Constant strikes, mostly symbolic, but nevertheless in Iraq and Syria between US forces and resistance factions. Uh, so yes, it looks very combustible at the moment. I think that's the right conclusion to draw at this point. So what is the main danger here? A broad regional war? And does anybody want it? Or maybe the series of smaller conflicts. So what is the main danger here? Yeah, that's very astute. I mean, what we have already is a series of lower density conflicts, right? They're happening right now. So this is the Red Sea. This is the Lebanese-Israeli border, Syria, Iraq, all the things they mentioned. Of course, there is also a high intensity conflict going on in Gaza, but this is for the moment contained to Gaza. 
I think the risk ultimately of these series of low intensity conflicts turning into one big regional conflict is actually quite low. And that is mostly because the key actors do not want it, right? The US doesn't want it. That could actually definitively lose President Biden the elections with this timing. Iran doesn't want it because they're looking at the succession of Khamenei. You know, they have enough on their plate domestically. They're not in a very strong position ultimately. And they don't want to risk all their assets that they've built up over the years. So Hezbollah also doesn't want it. The only actor that I think could could really consciously trigger it is Israel. And that could be by attacking Hezbollah directly. Because that Iran would have to respond to that, right? So that would trigger a regional conflict. There are a few other ways in which we might get there. Mostly miscalculation, you know, something going wrong somewhere. But I think both Iran and the US have shown themselves to be quite capable to contain their reactions, to not expand on purpose and to be flexible about their red lines. And this is because they don't want conflict. So in all, you cannot exclude it, but it's very likely that this becomes some sort of, uh, you know, regional conflict with capital C. I agree with you that if Biden would have to deal with the broader conflict in the Middle East, it might be hugely problematic for him in the autumn. But he's also pushed by hawks in the US. And also some hardline in it, Tehran, might think about the current situation as an opportunity to get rid of Biden. And let's be honest, I'm not even sure about Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. His situation with Biden is probably not the best one. So I think there are some players that might think that they will benefit from the broader conflict and they might surprise us. What do you think about it? Yes, this is always a risk. I mean, uh, you're right to point out that there are hardline elements on both sides. But I think this is mostly pertaining to Israel in the US and not so much pertaining to a regional conflict. I mean, if ironically this whole episode and the sort of 100% US support for Israel leads President Biden to lose the elections, for example, because American Arabs, you know, will not vote for him. What do you get? The most likely scenario is Trump, right? He was not exactly a friend of regional stability or the Palestinians. So that scenario, I don't think, is in Iran's interest either to the extent that they can influence it. But it's true that, that it's possible for escalation to happen. That's in part because all these groups linked to Iran are not, it's not like Iran is their puppet master, right? So they have a degree of autonomy, some more than others. And so they can do stupid things. They can make mistakes, right? And some of these mistakes, especially if there were to be a lot of US or Israeli casualties, then would trigger a big response, which could then trigger another response because all the countries seek to restore the deterrence that they think they should have. And there could be simple miscalculation, right? Like a missile hitting barracks directly and killing 40 soldiers instead of a supply dump next door or something like that. But, you know, unless these things are also really big order of magnitude, I think what we see so far from the US and Iran in particular is restraint. When they get close, too close to the brink, they pull back. And we see that, for example, in this statement that Qatar Bezbollah, you know, that was the Iran-linked group that did the attack on the Tower 22, the US base in Jordan. They put out a statement directly after the attack, basically indicating that they were going to stop their attacks on US forces. That was a signal, I think, that they realized they had gone too far, or maybe they were pressured into it by Tehran, and that they did not want further escalation. And then the Americans made several days with their counter-strike, so that means all these groups had time to hide their people, to hide their material, to prepare, basically, right? Just what Iran did after the death of General Soleimani a few years back. It also attacked a number of U.S. bases, but it, it gave advance warning. 
these things all suggest that there is no intent for a regional war, but you know, the risk is there because there is a lot of people with guns, missiles, different groups. So you can never fully control it, of course. In 2015, a coalition led by Saudi Arabia and more or less, I would say more or less supported by the West, launched an intervention in Yemen. Nine years after this, in my view, very little was solved. There is a humanitarian disaster in Yemen and Houthis can put pressure on international trade by attacking ships in the Red Sea. Is Yemen one big failure of basically anybody who is involved? Well, I mean, in Yemen, we see sort of a local set of circumstances interacting with a more international set of circumstances, right, i.e. Gaza. So there is, of course, the unresolved issue of the Yemeni civil war that, like you say, the Saudis led a bigger coalition, right, that included the Arab Emirates, for example, in 2015. They have fought for like seven years. Now they're talking for some time, but and the Houthis are still there, right? I mean, their trigger was because the Houthis captured Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and then established themselves in the entire north of the country. They're still there, right? And they're not going to go anywhere. It's not a particularly nice group. They basically want to set up a theocratic state based on a pretty fundamentalistic interpretation of Islam. But they're there, and they need to be dealt with. And, you know... Th- They've always had a very strong anti-US, anti-Zionist, anti-Western narrative to legitimize their violence. They were not doing a particularly good job at governing Yemen, because like you say, there is famine, which is not their fault, but you know, and they're not doing very well in taking care of the needs of the average Yemeni. So this tragedy that we see in Gaza was like perfect excuse, basically, to distract attention, right? And now the Houthis have found that, you know, from a local actor in conflict on the periphery of the Arab world that nobody was really paying attention to, they're now on the global stage, right? Blocking the Red Sea for commercial shipping. So it's great for them. It's great for their reputation, for their legitimacy. It strengthens their narrative. It allows them to recruit. You know, this is a good example, I think, of how a conflict that's been going on for some time, for years, that nobody really paid any attention to suddenly flares up because it connects with another set of factors, right? And there are several possibilities across the Middle East of this happening. As you said, Iran is not the puppet master or not a total puppet master of many groups that are operating in the region. But Houthis are receiving military aid and support from Tehran. And now they are really threatening the international trade. Anyway, how to signal to the Iran that maybe Houthis are crossing the headlines? Well, I mean, if you want these attacks in the Red Sea to stop, I think the approach would have to come from several, contain several dimensions, right? One is, of course, to bring the military, Israeli military invasion of Gaza to an end, because this is the justification for the Houthi attacks. And there are also big humanitarian reasons to put that to an end, but that's a different story. So you want action there, you know, you need to do something about Gaza. I think the, the second thing is that, you know, the, the Yemeni civil war will need to be resolved, of course, for the Houthi to take on a different role. And the Saudis have been busy negotiating in the realization that their incursion of 2015 was didn't deliver them anything, right? Apart from a lot of dead people and a lot of money that it's cost. So they're looking for the exit. So there, I think, you know, if the international community wanted the Houthi to step back, I think he would have to put something in place that attracts them, right? Like a big fund for the reconstruction of Yemen or something like that, supervised by the UN, so that you don't give all the money to the Houthi directly, of course. There's a need for billions, right? So that could be a way. And then thirdly, like you say, some more pressure would probably need to be brought on Iran, which 
it's difficult to interdict all their arm shipments, of course, because by now they've also exported the technology so the Houthi can build some of these things themselves. They don't need like ships with weapons from Iran or something like that. So in that sense, some of these airstrikes and some maritime patrols can be useful, but by themselves, they will not resolve anything. It will have to be part of a bigger package. So talking about the part of the bigger package, of course, Gaza is there. And the current pre-escalation, we can say, began with the terrorist attack by Hamas last year in October. And that was, of course, followed by the Israel reaction. Since then, according to Gaza officials, more than 27,000 Palestinians have been killed in the conflict. I know we are not going to solve it here, otherwise we would get a Nobel Peace Prize or whatever. But uh, do you see at least partial way out of this? Is it even possible trying to work towards the two-state solution? Pertinent question. I mean, I think we can reply, give different replies at two different levels, right? Like one is how to get to an immediate ceasefire so that, like you say, it doesn't become 50,000 dead Palestinians instead of 27,000 with the imminent Israeli attack on Rodatha can have that kind of effect. And that is that is possible. That just requires a lot more international pressure. And if the Americans wanted it, they could get Israel to stop its military action within a matter of weeks, I think. But it's not just dependent on the US. I haven't seen any European or Arab country, for that matter, take any serious measures against Israel that could raise the call actions. So if we think this is all such a terrible humanitarian tragedy and might have elements of genocide to be proven and discussed in the court of the Hague, but you know, there obviously there is a standing order being issued to prevent the risk of that. Then, you know, where are, where are the sanctions, right? Where is the pressure on Israel? Where is the diplomatic isolation, the economic sanctions, etc.? Because it's clear they're not going to listen otherwise. They can just do what they want if nobody tells them to stop. And this is precisely what's happening. So, you know, that is a possibility. I think the deeper question is, like you say, a two-state solution, is that still possible? I would say not under the current circumstances, right? There is no indication that the Israeli government is even willing to move one centimeter in that direction. The Palestinian Authority is dysfunctional, so that needs to be completely revived. Uh, obviously, Hamas, whether we like it or not, it will have to play a part in some future peace arrangement, because if you exclude them, you can be sure it will fail. But a lot of steps will need to be taken before that because they did also instill a massacre on 7 October, of course, and it's logical that the Israelis have other ideas about this. But some way will need to be found, but that's going to take time, right? So these factors are not conducive at the moment. And the international community is just sort of standing by and watching, right? I mean, who's doing anything to bring a two-state solution closer? Nobody. Apart from, I'm not talking about press releases and public statements, I'm talking about concrete action. And that's been like that for a few decades now. So if these factors remain in place, we will just see more violence, in my opinion. Erwin, how do you react to the statements that no matter what's going on in Gaza, it's basically Hamas' fault? And I see people saying the only thing that negotiators with Hamas should demand from Hamas is to surrender. Sounds like the easy solution. But it is probably not very realistic, isn't it? <laughs> no, and it's also, if I may say so, a very simplistic understanding of reality because, you know, Hamas in the end, it's a product of the Israeli occupation. I mean, which started in 67 when Israel conquered the West Bank, Gaza, uh, East Jerusalem, the Sinai and the Golan. The occupation of these areas has been established to be illegal under international law, right? 
So this was 67. So we're in 2023, uh, 2024 already. So what the hell is Israel still doing in these areas? And it is because they, well, they gave the Sinai back to Egypt, of course. So that, that should be said as part of the peace treaty. But it's because Israel wants to hold on to them, right? But it so happens that this was also the homeland of the Palestinians, who obviously don't take kindly to well, what they consider to be an occupying power. And so this triggers resistance, and Hamas is one form of that resistance. PLO was another one. You know, Hamas is a complex movement. It has a political part, it has a social part, it has a militant group, as we all know. And that militant group has, you know, done some pretty extreme things, including killing innocent and unarmed civilians. So just to say then that, you know, it's sort of Hamas' fault that that's just looking at 7 October in splendid isolation, right? Without any understanding of what happened before. Uh, in fact, it was Israel that encouraged the predecessor of Hamas to come into being at the time as a counterweight to the PLO. And that's because they didn't want PLO to become too strong because that could pose a threat to their own uh, occupation practices. It's a complex story, but, uh, you know, at heart it is quite simple. These areas do not belong to the Israeli state. And so some way will have to be found to get Israel out of them. But a successive series of Israeli governments doesn't want it, right? And that doesn't justify what Hamas has done, of course. It also doesn't justify how Israel is carpet bombing the Gaza Strip at the moment. That's both extreme violence that we should all be shot by in a war, but you know, at the same time, it's a product of much longer processes. So let's come back maybe to the bigger picture. And of course, how those things are somewhat connected to the bigger picture. How much is all of this driven also by the Iran-Saudi rivalry, or maybe was driven by the, because it seems there are some kind of signs that there might be self-understanding between Riyadh and Dera. Saudi-Iranian rivalry doesn't have a whole lot to do with the Palestinian issue, not directly in any case. I think there are two elements here maybe to consider, but there are two steps removed from the current conflict, I think. Iran has always used the Palestinian issue to support its anti-Western, anti-US, anti-Zionist agenda by labeling Israel essentially as a violent colonial state that is oppressing the rights of the Palestinians as fellow Muslims. But that was mostly rhetorical until it started to work with Hamas and Islamic Jihad and so on. The Saudis have also historically supported the Palestinians, of course. It started with the Fat plan in the 80s, a long time ago, several initiatives. And now they've made it clear just today, I think, or yesterday, that you know they will not normalize relations with Israel unless there is an actual two-state solution. So... You know, they've both used Palestine, committed or not, for their own purposes, but it, it's not been a driver of their own rivalry. And as you say, they've actually tried to patch up recently over the past few years, right? Because the Saudis were initially behind the American agenda that saw the U.S. withdraw from the nuclear deal, put a lot of sanctions in place. But they realized that this was too dangerous for them, basically. We all remember the attacks on Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia that's brought the oil price or the production of oil down for a few days and the oil price up. So they're, you know, they're neighbors, so they'll have to figure it out. And um, they're too close to Iran uh, to afford themselves such a hostile stance. And they've come to this insight and so far so good. So uh, I think that rivalry is not gone. The mistrust is high. Saudis are concerned about the security threat from Iran, but it's not an active conflict at the moment. Edwin, and one last thing, what about the involvement of the global powers? Do Russia and China 
want to gain something out of the current situation in the Middle East. And I don't want to start a plot of the Tom Clancy's book, but I would say that for both, for Moscow and Beijing, it's good to see the U.S. being involved in the protected conflict or conflicts in the region. It's fair to say that in Moscow and Beijing, the popcorn is on the table, right? They will only win from this situation. And especially the Russians are having a field day, I think, because the Americans are so unconditionally supporting Israel and clearly attaching no value to international law and humanitarian law. The very same arguments that they have used to judge the Russian invasion of Ukraine are now suddenly okay, right? It's totally fine for Israel to be doing what it's doing. So that's a major propaganda narrative blow, basically, to the Americans that who are very fast, I think, losing global credibility from a moral and international rights point of view. I mean, it's not like the Americans have never done anything that, you know, goes against human rights and all the great powers have done that. But this is particularly salient, of course, because of the level of destruction and because of the sort of more moral position that they correctly, of course, undertook against Russia. But they should have done just the same in the Israeli case, of course. And China, I mean, has much less involvement in the Middle East, of course, mostly from an economic profile. But, of course, everything that distracts the U.S. from its self-proclaimed, you know, geopolitical contest with China is good for Beijing. And this is also why the U.S. doesn't want a regional conflict, because that would suck them into the region like nothing else. And it would distract from everything else they're trying to do in both Ukraine and in the South Chinese Sea. But nevertheless, if you look at it uh, cynically from a Chinese perspective, it's a good development. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.